Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. Well, what is up everyone and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. My name is Dion Gribbon and this is episode 32, the Gold Rush edition. Well, I'm going to jump straight into talking about how the market went this week. So the ASX 200 had a very good week. It was up 5.4% for the entire week. Over in the US, pretty good as well, not as good. The S&P 500 was up 3.8% and the NASDAQ was up 4.6%. So a very green week all around, both here and in the US. The ASX actually had its best week since April and those... As US benchmarks I just mentioned, they had their best weeks respectively since the start of July. So like I said, all around a pretty good week. Well, let's get into it a bit and talk about some of the driving factors on the market. And then we'll also take a look at some of the more specific company news that caught my eye during the week. From purely a domestic point of view here in Australia, the week was very, very much centered around the federal budget. And I believe... I guess also to some point there was commentary coming from the RBA around the state of the Australian economy but I'm going to start with the budget I'll be the first to admit I'm I'm not the most educated person and in terms of providing some kind of nuanced opinion on the success or failure of this federal budget but I don't really plan to and it's not going to be a major focus of the podcast but I will point out some of the more interesting pieces I took from the news and we'll talk a little bit about that so I have very lightly perused the budget 2020 to 21 document available pretty much everywhere. Just give it a Google if you want to bore your brains out this weekend. But here are a few things that I find interesting. The most obvious one that I'm going to look at, which is on theme with what this podcast is also about, can be found on page 40 of the budget document, and it's entitled Your Future, Your Super. I like quite a lot of what is being discussed here. Firstly, the big news is Aussies will automatically keep their superannuation fund when they change employers. And what I mean there, it will stick to you, so to speak. So let's say you start a job, maybe your first job, you're working as a, a barista at a, at a coffee shop and you're working there for a couple of years and then maybe you become like a graduate nurse or whatever because you finished uni. So that super account that you initially opened up, it's going to stick to you and follow you Uh, to the next job. That doesn't mean you still can't change super accounts, I guess, if you want, but it means, I guess, the point here being is there is a lot of wasted and duplicate superannuation accounts floating around because people who have worked multiple jobs across their life and especially across multiple different industries, they tend, you know, we're just lazy people, right? We We just sign the forms that the employer gives us when we're signing up to a new company or a new business and it's usually with whatever their preferred or default superannuation choice is. And I'm not throwing shade at anyone because I was one of those people, you know. My first job was in retail, and then I well, I also worked a little bit hospitality, which I'm sure many can, people can relate to, especially as their first jobs. I spent a little bit of time working in a government role and then for a bank. But the point is, at a certain stage, I had four super accounts under my name, which is stupid, and... Now, I mean, in my, I can't remember when, it would have been somewhere in my early 20s, I did finally have this epiphany moment where I 
sort of educated myself on just how stupid it was to be paying fees and hold all these small balances all over the shop. But it took me a while and I probably wasted maybe maybe five years or so with having all these different accounts out there and finally getting my act together under this proposal, I guess in the budget, that wouldn't have been possible or it won't be possible, I guess. It's going to stop that kind of thing from happening. So I guess that first super account that I opened, I think was REST because it was retail, REST being one of the big retail ones. It probably would have, it should, well, under this proposal, it would stick to me. So it would have stuck with me as I jumped around uh, to different jobs instead of me opening up different superannuation accounts. But further, what I, I guess I also like is the government will create its own super comparison tool for people like us to use and compare. At the moment, you can really only use, I guess, non-government related comparison tools or comparison businesses like a Finder or a CanStar to look at those kind of things. But the government's going to create their own tool to do this and sort of compare fund performance and fees. But further, which is really interesting, and I'm not actually sure how they specifically will measure this, but the government said it will hold super funds to account for poor performance. And they went as far as stating that funds that underperform consistently sorry, will no longer be able to actually accept new members until until they sort their shit out, I guess. Literally verbatim, Josh Frydenberg said sort their shit out. Not really, but that is interesting. From the, like, They didn't really go into exactly how, you know, whether it's a certain percentage underneath the benchmark of, of an index or a benchmark of what super funds should be doing that they're underperforming and how they're going to, I guess, measure that. But that's very interesting. I guess AMP is screwed. <laughs> but seriously, if you actually go and look at, um, if you go to the website Stockspot, they they are kind of known for what they, they release this report every year called the Fat Cat Funds Report. They kind of like call out poor performing super funds, I guess in terms of just their underlying performance, but also their fees and just sort of how that, how that makes them a bad super fund. Anyway, AMP is always there on those reports. So not good. Okay, other budget stuff. Maybe I'll just touch on maybe some of the most discussed features. We have JobMaker, which is the latest program with the word job in it. And it is not so much a payment, it's a credit to employers starting now that will incentivize hiring younger people in the form of in this case, there's a $200 credit for a firm hiring an eligible person aged 16 to 29 and then a $100 credit, so half that if the person is aged 30 to 35. The other one that was very much probably in the spotlight the most was a was a move or they bring forward personal income tax threshold changes that they've already talked about. So pre-budget, the 19% tax ban stopped at 37,000 in income and this will now be that will now stop at 45,000 instead the next tax ban above 19% was is 32.5% that stopped at 90,000 that will be, extend out to incomes um, up to 120,000 so that was some of the bigger stuff i mentioned the super changes first because that's something i see being really important i guess a little bit biased there but if you're not someone who has ever looked into your super or looked at super before. Maybe you can use that upcoming government tool to compare super performance when they release that one. And as I mentioned before, there was also some commentary during the week from the RBA, the Reserve Bank of Australia, in their October Financial Stability Review, which is a report 
they release twice a year with some commentary, I guess their opinion and evaluation of the financial system and risks to stability of our financial system. And there's some stuff I guess you could say is pretty similar to what the RBA and Treasury at large have noted over the past few months already. But I did pick out a couple of interesting things from the report. And I'll first start with some commentary around the banking system specifically. This comes from page three in their report. So they say, quote, banks are more resilient following the reforms that followed the GFC, which in particular boosted their capital and liquidity. Policymakers have taken unprecedented actions to support their economies and financial systems. And in contrast to what occurred during the GFC, confidence in banks has remained high as they were not the source of the shock. Australian banks have high capital levels, are profitable, and most of their loans are well secured. So a couple different things there. RBA pointing out that this isn't, of course, a recession and downturn that is similar in cause to what we experienced during the GFC. Of course, you can just draw lines between some of the, the flow and effects such as drops in big drops in consumer, consumer confidence and spending, higher unemployment, not to brush over those, but so those are similar, but the catalyst behind it is very different. The GFC was so different, right? So as in compared to this, you know, the it's not like the GFC had forced lockdowns of businesses and a pandemic running through our population. But And as you heard, also the RBA sort of mentioned the banks having having that high confidence that the banks can actually weather the storm, even though we've we do see these numbers of mortgage deferrals happening across the country. Part of the sort of confidence, I guess, from the RBA point of view and their ability to take the hit is not just that they're in a different position compared to the GFC, for example, but also that APRA has put caps on these things like we talked about, like those dividend payouts to ensure that banks conserve some of that money for worst case scenarios. And there are still those quite high numbers of mortgage deferrals happening. I can't, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, there was NAB CEO Ross McEwen was talking about, I don't, I don't even want to quote it because I forget the percentage specifically, but he was talking about the percentage of their home loan customers who have, who are on, who have deferred their mortgage repayments, but they've kind of gone quiet on the bank. So when the bank's reaching out to have a chat to them to see where they're at, they're just not picking up the phone or returning emails or texts and stuff. And that's a little bit concerning, of course. So, but anyway, um, another point in this article regarding business health, so not specific to banks, but just businesses in Australia. This is on page 30, quote, prior to the pandemic, around half of all Australian firms only had enough cash on hand to cover one month of expenses. And if cash on hand, in quotation marks, is broadened from the value of firms' cash and deposit holdings to include other liquid assets, such as inventories and accounts receivable, the share with limited cash falls to about 35% of all firms. They go further to note that it was the ones that were hardest hit that also had the worst statistics around cash buffers leading into this. So the accommodation and food services and, say, art industry businesses, they were not only, of course, the ones hardest hit by COVID-19, but also the ones leading up to it that were in the most vulnerable uh, state, I guess, in terms of those sort of having 
cash on hand and cash buffers to sort of weather the storm, right? And, you know, especially, you know, the, the, the type of sharp decline that we've had, that's going to impact like a, say, like a music and dance theatre company more than, say, a mining firm. Another one I picked out on page 21 was, it said, the share, quote, the share of households behind on loan repayments has risen and is expected to increase further. Borrowers who have deferred loan repayments will at some point need to resume repayments whilst or while housing prices have declined only modestly to date, they could fall further given weak population growth and the potential that some mortgage holders in financial difficulties sell their properties, which is something we've seen a little bit being talked about, especially in the last few weeks. And now I picked out this one because that point also around population growth, which is being flagged as a big concern, I noticed that economists Saul Eslake and uh, Alan Kohler, who's a commentator as well, highlighted how in the, his budget and the treasury estimates that population growth in Australia will actually fall to its lowest levels that it's been in 100 years over uh, this year or over the coming couple years. And most of that is because of net overseas migration, which will actually be negative over the next couple years, which is why the reserve sort of points out that sort of worrying trend, uh, especially around sort of house prices as well. Now, I'm just going to zoom out for a little bit and move to the US in terms of what, I guess, drove the market during the week. I mean, yes, everyone was still fixated on the, the sort of news we discussed in last week's episode surrounding Trump catching coronavirus. But really what the market is, not that people don't care about the president having coronavirus, but what the market's watching is stimulus talk so the so whether the u.s government or the congress will pass further stimulus for the u.s economy and it actually the market got quite rocked during the week trump tweeted that he'd instructed his representatives to stop negotiating on stimulus until after the election and he said when immediately after i win we will pass a major stimulus bill that focuses on hard-working americans small business blah 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 so he cited Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the House, as not negotiating a good faith around the proposed next stimulus. But you'll notice there, which was interesting, is that he said, I have instructed my reps to stop negotiating until after the election, which well, I'll get into in just a second. But the market fell sharply on this kind of news, as you would imagine. So the S&P 500 had actually been trucking along just fine at the start of the week. And then sort of slumped almost, I think it was around 1.7, 1.8% off the back of this tweet. But what I'm trying to say too, when he when he cited in his tweet, I have instructed my representative to stop negotiating. From purely just a political strategy point of view, it's very silly to put your hand up and, and sort of declare to everyone that I'm the one that's stopping stimulus talks or stopping you know any kind of further stimulus or payments to businesses or, or the citizens, especially given how dire the economic situation is for millions and millions of people in America. And obviously his you know, political aides and you know, the people that whisper in president's ears convinced him to change his tune because really he, cha- he did change his tune for the remainder of the week. Only 12 hours ago, as I'm recording this on Saturday afternoon, he tweeted that COVID relief negotiations are now moving along. Go big, he says. So very different to the the tweet at the start of the week. And CNBC reported that the US market did climb up on Friday, especially just due to that renewed stimulus hopes. So 
the the week for the US markets in a matter of days it goes from stimulus woes to hopes uh, in the roller coaster that is the market sometimes and and also I guess it's unrelated but as I'm recording it says that the official or officially it's saying that the second debate that was scheduled for this week between Biden and Trump has been cancelled which is not surprising I guess let's jump into some company news like I said at the top regarding the index a very good week in Australia overall for the market and when you dig into the details it was a good week individually for some of the smaller companies that make up the ASX. I'm going to talk about some of those ones that don't get much love all the time. All right, have you heard of ARB? Because you surely would have seen one of their stickers on the back of a big full drive or ute. Well, ARB was one of the best performers on the market this week. Their shares are up almost 12.5% for the week. And this comes after a market update that it released. ARB shares closing the week at $32.21. And for some context, at the start of 2020, shares traded closer to $18.68 and actually dropped down to around sort of mid-10, so like around $10.80 or so in that March sell-off. ARB, if you're unfamiliar, it's a motoring accessory brand specific to four-wheel drives, outdoor, off-road accessories, if this is starting to ring a bell, you've probably noticed their logo on bull bars and snorkels, canopies, roof racks, all that kind of stuff. They do a ton of various products that is, frankly, it's a world that I'm personally unfamiliar with, but that's okay. This is a company that's seen some significant tailwinds this year, and that's what we're going to touch on here. And these tailwinds have led ARB to actually declare in its market update this week that unaudited sales revenue has grown 17.7% for the first quarter of the financial year, so July to the 30th of September there, and profit before tax for the quarter of $29.7 million. Now, ARB noted in their memo that this growth that they've seen, this big jump in growth, is due to, well, they at least they perceive it to be due to pent-up demand uh, from the lockdown and I guess also an increase in interest towards local touring and sort of more domestic activities where people might want to be upgrading their full drives. I suppose their exports have been very good as well and I guess also government support in, in terms of stimulus. Now, they did sort of say to, I guess, in a sort of hold your horses style manner that they don't want to give any full year guidance and this successful quarter shouldn't necessarily be extrapolated out for the full year as guidance because, of course, the, the outlook and economic conditions moving forward over the next year is still, well, there's still a lot of uncertainties, which is a, probably a fair statement to make. So a good week for ARB shareholders. Good year, really. I don't, I mean, yeah, very good year for them so far. Don't really have a, like a personal investment point of view on it. I don't own shares in this company, but this is all about educating you on comp companies you might not know about or might not know that they're actually on the market. But let's change tracks and very, well, let's change tracks completely and talk about another company in a business I don't have much personal experience with. And that is, I guess you define them as like a nursery baby retailer. We're talking about baby bunting. And now baby bunting sells everything you need if you're having a baby. So from prams, car seats, Manchester, whatever. I don't know. I had to go on their website and now I'm already getting ads served on social media about baby products because the Google algorithms think I'm having a kid now. So these are some of the sacrifices I make for the show, but thank you. They're an Australian brand born in Melbourne, 
just like ARB, they had a cracker of a week, shares up 9.7% and closing Friday at $4.97 per share, which is an all-time high for them, I'm pretty sure. Now, this came off the back of some updates that the company provided at its AGM, its annual general meeting, which was held during the week. So some of the highlights, uh, this part was reported here by the AFR during the week. So Baby Bunting's comparable stores sales rose 17% in the 14 weeks to October the 2nd. And that's compared with a growth of 3.1% in the period last year. And if you hear that term comparable store sales, which you will always see with kind of like physical retailers like this, it's, it's basically a measurement that looks at the revenue being created by, say, the baby bunting locations that are around Australia, but relative to what it generated in the previous period. And I guess what this, this is what an analyst would look at as one way to understand the picture around how, I guess, those existing stores are growing or, or not growing revenue versus... I mean, how the, I guess how they perform against a brand new store, for example. And I'm just going to point out a few things from their AGM presentation here, which they released to the market in the middle of the week. And like many businesses these days, they are seeing a big jump or a further jump in the shift from consumer preference to online sales. And when they say online sales, they're also talking about their click and collect channel which is part of this figure. So online sales for them have grown 126% and make up now over just over 20% of total sales. And much of this is coming from their consumables, you know, Manchester furniture, but they think, I guess, where they've seen, I guess, a bit of a downturn in travel-related stuff, they're seeing that that's starting to pick up as the lockdowns begin to ease. They also noted a strategic review of New Zealand. So they... I mean, you can get shipping for their products. You can like shop online if you're in New Zealand and buy stuff there and it'll ship to New Zealand. But they're actually reviewing whether they consider an expansion of you know their stores actually into the New Zealand market as well, which is really interesting. But a very good week if you're a baby bunting shareholder. And finally, a few other noteworthy mentions to close the week out. I'm not going to go into a ton of detail, but it was a very decent week for the tech sector on the ASX as well. You had your buy now, pay later companies that especially had a very good week were the likes of Afterpay and Sezzle and Split It. Sezzle and Split It actually jumped off the back of both of them sort of giving some updates to the market. Uh, both of them again seeing some big growth in merchant sales for the quarter that just ended, which proved very good for shareholders. So that's why their shares jumped. Also, Elmo Software was noted as the best performer in the tech index for the week. And for full disclosure, I do own shares in Elmo, so this is not a piece of personal investment advice. But Elmo shares jumped just over 25.8% across the entire week alone after a $32 million acquisition of a UK HR platform called Breathe. So some big movements among tech this week and the market overall, but always good to remember the context because... Last week was a, was a bit of a shock off for the ASX. We, we fell almost 3% last week. So whilst the market did react quite positively, it seems to, I guess, the budget and maybe the US market had renewed some hope from stimulus. Just remember the ASX uh, was kind of just bouncing off some, some big lows that we experienced last week as well. But that is it for this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. No listener questions this week. It's been a few weeks since I've had a listener question. If you do have a listener question for me, 
shoot it through to marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. As always, please tell your friends and family about the podcast if you think they'll enjoy it, especially if you think they'll enjoy listening to information about full drive accessory companies and baby retail stores. Maybe I should have called this episode the Soccer Mum Podcast. Would that be offensive? I don't know. You decide. Well, I'm going to love and leave you, but enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your week. My name is Dion Gribben. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you for episode 33. Cheers. Cheers.